Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. And today we're going to talk about the breakdown of social networks or the, just social networks in general. If I, uh, I have two guests with me in the studio today. Bernice Pesco-Salido is here. She's the Chancellor Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, the Chancellor's Professor of Sociology. And Stanley Wasserman is here. He's Rudy Professor of Sociology, Psychology, and Statistics at Indiana University. Uh, if you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Welcome to both of you. I, I gave you short introductions and almost blew those, but <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for being here. Thank uh, you. We've had a, a nice conversation before the program began, um, this whole issue of social networks. There are so many different directions we can go, and, and as you, Professor Wasserman, uh, mentioned, both of you have been studying this for quite some time, so I'm sure we, we have uh, more than enough to talk about for the first hour today. We actually have an email already. I'm not going to get to that for, for just a minute. Um, the timing of, of the program is, is uh, due to a, a recent release of a study that's called Social Isolation in America, Changes in Core Discussion Networks Over Two Decades. And uh, Professor Wasserman, could you sort of address that study and, and a little bit about what that says? Um, this is part of the general social survey, which is done every year by the NORC, the National Opinion Research Council, which is out of the University of Chicago. Um, and there was a study in 1985, which was actually kind of revolutionary because they asked as part of the general social survey questions about people's networks. It was the first time that this was really done on a national level like this. Um, Peter Marsden, Ron Bird, and a couple of others were the people responsible for putting in these questions in the GSS in 1985. And then these questions were replicated um, just this past year. Um, this piece, which was published um, in the American Sociological Review, written by Lynn Smith Lovin and Miller McPherson and Matthew Brashears, who's one of their graduate students, Lynn and Miller at um, Duke and University of Arizona, um, asked the same questions. And um, the big question is, how many people do you discuss important matters with? And um, I believe the sample size on this was about 1,500. I think that's standard for the GSS. And the finding, um, the main finding that the press picked up was that the average has dropped from about three to about two mm -hmm. over the two decades. And what's that mean? Does that have any, does that have any great meaning in, in our society? Well, sure. I mean it does. I'm, this was a nice study. The GSS is a nice study and it's certainly believable and the statistical parts of it are just fine. Um, what it means is that the number of people that – you discuss important matters with um, seems to be dropping. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I think it's important to note that one's network, um, which of course consists of a lot more than just your close discussion partners, um, networks that people have, which we call ego-centered networks centered at the individual, um, these things have grown substantially over the last 5, 10, 20 years because of the many new ways that people interact with each other. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, Dr. Pesca Salido? Well, I think that there are some key things about this study that we need to understand. Um, on average, people said that when they dropped one discussion partner, and so there's good news and bad news in that. Um, the good news is is that most of the research on health and happiness suggests that you really need one confidant, and so we're not in the danger zone yet. But we've dropped one on average. I think the more surprising thing from the study is the doubling of the number of people in America who report that they have no confidants. So it went from about 12 percent in 1985 to 25 percent in 2004. And that social isolation is really critical. Uh, one thing we know about social isolation is that it is a more important risk factor in producing health and death than smoking. And most people are surprised by the, that kind of power of social life on their well-being. Mm -hmm. So when you 
talk about social isolation. How would you define that? Is not having a, one particular confidant or more than one? Well, I think Stanley alluded to the fact that there are different kinds of networks, and the kinds of networks that they were looking at here are the ones are face to face kinds of important matters networks, and these are really important um, for people as they face life crises. So people can have a social life through the internet, but when it comes down to the kind of life crises that they face regarding their health or their personal life, these are the kind of ties that matter, these mm-hmm. face-to-face. When you need people around mm-hmm. as opposed to people that you just know electronically. Mm-hmm. So if, if uh, and we talked about this briefly before, but if you have a, a situation in your life and you find a um, um, just a group on the internet that has similar problems or a similar issue to deal with and you do spend time making friends, making contacts and discussing it could be a mental health issue, it could be some something some trauma in your past, it could be any number of things. Um would you still be or could you still be, you know, uh, in social isolation even though you have this kind of a network to deal with? Well, I think it depends on um, what you're looking for from that that internet connection. And so I think social support groups on the internet are really important. But social networks are more than social support. So if you need information, the internet is great. If you need to talk to people about problems and get information about solutions, it's great. But social networks do more than provide social support. And those other two things that they do that I've been thinking about are really important in these life crises. One is that they oversee your life. They help regulate you and guide you. It's, you know, it's the, it's the wife nagging the husband to go to the doctor. And we know that that's very important for men's health. The other thing that um, these face-to-face ties do is get you out. They help you engage in activities. They um, uh, are very important for having something to do. And the internet doesn't do that. The internet continues the sort of sedentary life. And that kind of sedentary life has been implicated in all kinds of stress-related disorders. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are different kinds of networks. They serve different kinds of purposes. They can have positive or negative effects. So we need to be fairly sophisticated about how we think about these. Mm-hmm. Okay. 855 is our local phone number. 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area. And you can send your email, as always, to noon at indiana.edu. I think I'll uh, go to this email uh, that we have. It says, I've not read uh, your book. It's referring to Dr. Wasserman in this case. But as someone who deals with social networks, I wonder if you could comment on the growing movement of new urbanism. Is it unrealistic to think that people would actually connect with their neighbors in a meaningful way, forming little villages? Um, if you want to answer that one first and I'll go to the second question. Well, I think we've already alluded to the fact that people are forming new villages and many of these new villages are on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we've talked about how useful of a purposes these things serve. There's no question. I think this might uh, be, I mean, we are in Bloomington after all and um, development is is always a big issue. So if I could, I try to interpret this question a little bit. I think it has to do with if we, you know, create if we take the new urbanism style and we have more people living in, say, a neighborhood in the downtown as opposed to a big subdivision, uh, could that perhaps help create new networks? Well, this is where I think um, development policy is 20, 30 years behind social science because we've known it, – it's been the million-dollar question. Has the development of modern society eroded community? And a study was done in San Francisco Bay Area by Claude Fisher, and he showed that even in very large cities like San Francisco, New York, Chicago, that people always live their lives in small worlds, that there's really a small part of the city in which they develop those community ties. So if there are people who don't like the developments, those do create a certain kind of social community. And then the downtown creates a different kind of social community. So people can gravitate to the kinds of social relationships that they want. I think it's um, inaccurate to say that there are that, – that developments don't have social communities or social networks. They're just different. So mm-hmm. there are different kinds. And, and people can go to the kinds of areas that have the kinds of social relationships that they want. Mm-hmm. So you're not saying – 
uh, one is better than the other. One creates uh, communities and one doesn't create communities. I mean, I might have my personal preference, yeah, right. but, <laughs> you know, I don't think that's – I, it, it, I think people have different needs, particularly during different times of their life. If you mm-hmm. think about suburban developments, they are, are, are seem to pr- produce really good uh, ties, face-to-face ties for people with young families. That's right. And kids so, in school. Yeah, yeah, kids in school. That's really um, very – Important, and I think for what we see with the new urbanism, in part, is a movement back to urban areas by retiring couples. Um, and of course, it's always been a place where young singles have lived. So it depends on what kinds of ties you're looking for. And I think the other example are the gated retirement communities, That's right. where people right. go um, and and find people of their own age to you know interact with. And so it depends on if that's what you're looking for, or if you're looking for you know your children and their grandchildren to hang mm-hmm. out with. Then that's not the place for you to go. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the second part of this email says uh, also, do you think that people currently use television to form their social networks, connecting more with the problems of someone on a reality? show than with real friends? Um, That's a good question. Probably the answer to that is yes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we need to say any more about that. Well, I I will say one thing which has always amazed me is to watch um, the home shopping networks (laughs) and to see people developing ties. I mean, they, they, they seem to have relationships with these salespeople on the phone, mm-hmm. that seemed very personal. And to me, I have to say fairly strange. But um, so you do <laughs> see people using the television, you know, um, in that way. And I, I don't know about reality shows, though. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I guess they're survivors and non-survivors. Right. I, I don't right. know. All right. Phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348 and the email address, noon at indiana.edu. Um, as you were talking about uh, these networks, it, it struck me that you know, people do gravitate toward other people that think like them, that talk it's like them. Homophily. Birds homophily? Of a, birds of a feather flock together. Okay. So what's yeah. the implication of that for like our, our community or for a larger society? Well, I think that, that you know, we have to realize that people both can choose their ties, but they're also dependent upon where they live. So that we, we know, we've known for a long time that in ancient societies, you know, people could only have certain kind of relationships based on their age or their gender. Within and the now, walls of your little community. Yeah, within the walls of your mm-hmm. little yeah. community. But now there's a lot more choice. But it's not surprising that people seek out people like themselves because they share uh, beliefs and cultural views and other things. But I think one of the things that we know from the research is that people are also recruited into social networks. They don't just choose it, but sometimes they're recruited. And a lot of the research on how people get into different kinds of social and political movements suggests that they are recruited into them. So Mm -hmm. those social networks become part of their life. It does seem to have a lot of application to politics. Oh, absolutely. That uh, people are – and politics of of the day where it seems like the – the um, the the strength of belief about a certain political party or political position is uh, is getting it's just getting stronger and stronger and the 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 left is getting further to the left and the right is getting further to the right is that something that you've uh, noticed or would you am I, you know am I onto something here or not? Well, you know, you go back to the 1940s when V.O. Key started looking at networks as a determination of how people vote and found that it was more important than things like uh, their their characteristics, like their age or their sex. Um, it, what's happened, I think, over time is, you know, all you have to do is look at the – to have um, a, a preacher in a congregation tell – the people in that church that they need to vote a certain way shows the social power right. of religious networks mm-hmm. and how they operate now in the, in the political sphere. It may be that they always did, but I think to us um, now it, it seems more dominant. Uh, the thing about American society is that while we can talk about left and right, it always seems pretty middle of the road mm-hmm. to most people from Europe when they look over here. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And I, th- I think we should mention Howard Dean too, and who in his campaign yeah. in two thousand four really used networks um, online to recruit people, to get people out, to campaign for him, and. Um, you know, he was moderately successful mm-hmm. in doing so. Are we seeing more of that? Are we going? I, I think I, we will so. for sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. As 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 society becomes more and more internet savvy and literate, I think we'll see more of that. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Um, 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. As you uh, can tell, unless you just turned in, we're talking about social networks. I have two guests today. Um, Stanley Wasserman is here. He's a professor of sociology, psychology, and statistics at Indiana University. And Bernice Pesca-Solito is with us. She's the chancellor's professor of sociology at, at Indiana University. Um, the it seems as if a lot of what we're seeing today that's really very frightening. I mean, the whole role of terrorism in our community is a is a form of this. Uh, people are creating networks that are very extreme. Um, Dr. Wasserman, could you respond to that? Well, I, I don't know about that, but mm-hmm. but I do know that um, network information is being used um, to to study terrorist groups. Um, you know, we certainly have heard in the past month about the NSA gathering phone data mm-hmm. to try to look at who was calling whom and, and who had phone conversations with suspected terrorists. And then I think we heard just a couple of weeks ago about swift electronic money exchanges and how the government also had data on how money flowed. Um, mm-hmm even larger networks because we're really talking about international kinds of money flow these days. And, um, you know, this is network data. There's no question about it, phone communications and money flows. And um, you can study these things to look for special kinds of individuals. Are you looking for patterns? and Absolutely. Yep. Well, fairly, fairly soon after 9-11, um, sociologists became involved in, in trying to understand the terrorist networks themselves. Mm-hmm. And Kathleen Carley at um, University of uh, Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon. Thanks, Stanley. Um, did work that I thought was very interesting because it showed the nature of the terrorist networks are such that the search for Osama bin Laden may be a ideologically popular thing, but it's going to do very little to change terrorist networks because the way their networks are set up, the uh, cutting off the head of a network doesn't really do much to change the operation of the network itself. So uh, very early on, people have been trying to understand how these terrorist networks work in in order to help dismantle them? These networks are, are not terribly centralized. Centralization is a word that we use a lot in, in network analysis, meaning that there, there is really no charismatic figure that everybody is attached to. And you have one person in the middle and lots of people on the periphery, they tend not to look like that. They tend to be very, mm-hmm. very decentralized with everybody about the same. And so as Brittany said, removing one or two nodes, as we say, one or two people from such networks usually doesn't have a huge effect on the network structure. What what strengthens or weakens a network like that? Well, net, networks that are terribly decentralized, you really can't, um, you can't. make them fall apart because there typically are, are many ties and they're sort of are dispersed at random among the individuals and removing a chunk of ties, removing a chunk of the people – sort of keeps the same basic structure. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things is what Stanley alluded to earlier, which is that if you cut the the flow of resources, um, then you interfere with the ability of the network to do things. And mm-hmm. so there's probably not much you can do to dismantle the ties except to try to stop at the recruitment phase. But in order for these networks to operate, there have to be flows of money right. and information across these networks. So you can try to to short-circuit those. Mm-hmm. Different kinds of relational information. I mean earlier we were talking about the structure of these networks really based on sort of who was giving orders to whom using authority as, as a relational um, measure. But we can certainly look at money flows. We can look at um, other kinds of communication. And um, it's important, again, to think of a network not as – just who calls whom or who gives money to whom but as a very multidimensional beast with lots of different kinds of information, resources flowing amongst different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Now, both of you have been uh, studying this for quite a while. I would say that my first introduction to you know, in, any thoughts about networks – came with uh, the the book written by I can't think James Putnam I think Robert uh, Putnam Robert right, Putnam right. okay bowling alone right. uh, which talked about the loss of, of certain social networks um, you know where in, in uh, well where in, I guess in the sort of the scheme of things was Putnam's theory uh, you know when when he when he wrote that book um, was it a, a new concept or was it something that you guys were all very familiar with at the time 
Um, well, network analysis has been around since the 30s mm-hmm. and um, good quantitative studies began in the 1930s and, and we were talking a bit about – a bit earlier about um, the number of isolated individuals mm-hmm. um, in the country, in the world and actually the first quantitative person that looked at this was a psychiatrist named Moreno in New York City and this was one of his big focuses, um, how many isolated individuals there are. and. Um, you know, network analysis has has certainly gotten better over the last seventy years. We have a lot more data now, and it's certainly in popular culture. The phrase six degrees of separation," everybody knows that, but that's a network idea. Um, and I think Putnam's work sort of is just a, a new spin on problems that we've we've been looking at for a very long time and very much related to the the study in the American Sociological Review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think that's the issue that that um when uh, Putnam was looking at you know voluntary association ties, you know, do you belong to the Elks? Do you belong to the Y? Do you do these other things? Um, the, I think the first really solid data that we have that there is a rise in isolation is this study, because it really provides data that can be directly compared from 1985 to 2000. Four, mm-hmm. and so well, we really get a sense that that there's something going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the most recent study talks about you know the, your confidence um, in Putnam's work. Uh, bowling alone was basically that fewer people were were bowling in leagues. Right. Exactly. You know, I, I think uh, one um, you know if anybody from our Parks and Rec department is listening to David, they could tell me if I'm wrong. But you know, I I for years played in the softball leagues in Bloomington, and there were you know there were thousands of people that played, and I, I, I'm fairly certain that the number of people playing this year is probably, you know, down twenty, thirty, forty percent mm. from the number of people playing ten years ago. It sort of peaked and then dropped off. So is that? I mean, is Putnam's theory is that trend continuing? You know, on that fewer people are joining. You know, group activities. Is that just something that's continuing on a trend line? Well, I, I think one is that there, is, there are a lot more opportunities so that the culture, cultural ideals are not as centralized as they once were. So now you have, um, you know, people going to, um, you know, rock wall climbing. And you know, going to the Y for all kinds of activities, solo ex- and, yeah. and, and a lot more solo activities too. And, and uh, but I, yeah. I think the point of the the piece that you mentioned, Bob, was really that that there's something about increased hours of work, increased commutes that is making people more reliant on their nuclear family, or you know, what free time they have, they spend with their nuclear family, which means less time for this kind of community engagement. Mm-hmm. That's sort of where that piece goes. The other thing that I've heard the authors talk about recently is that they find there are regional differences. And so here in the Midwest, we're actually better off. Now, mm-hmm. apparently, we're not as good, uh, we're not as well off as if we lived in Minnesota. <laughs> wow. But upper Midwest. Upper Midwest, yeah, <laughs> upper Midwest. But uh, we're a lot better off than the East Coast, apparently. So that or, or California. Yeah. Right. Right. The new work that they're doing is suggesting that there are also regional bases to these kind of communal activities. So my guess would be in a place like Bloomington, you know, we're still in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think the demographics of the population matters Two matter two because um, this this is a population that's getting older. Um, mm-hmm. I think the baby boom, which is working its way now, you know, starting people are now about sixty at mm-hmm. the at the one end of the baby boom, and and you know the things that you do when you're fifty five and sixty are different than the things that you do when you're thirty and thirty five. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the fact that there are fewer people playing softball right now may very well be due to simply the fact Just that age. the population. Is is changing? I was hoping it wasn't. I was hoping I wasn't just getting too old. <laughs> oh, keep, no, keep playing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the other thing is that that the research that's been done suggests that these ties are particularly important for people who are older, mm-hmm. and so uh, the issue of isolation is particularly important among the elderly. And you see all kinds of groups that are attempting to compensate for that. And you know, when I always think of the. Uh, the heart team at the Y, you know, right. that really you see a bunch of people who are together constantly. Yes, it's on the basis of the fact that they have had, to be there. They have <laughs> right. to be there, at least for right. a while. But, you right. know, a lot yeah. of them have been there for years and years right. and years, I've observed. Right. And it's because it does provide a, a form of, of social contact, which keeps them in touch with the community. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that in terms of, you know, the the Y, uh, you know, I, I love to go to the Y and, and I get the same workout there 
that I would get if I just go out my front door and start running around sure. the streets. But it's a, it, it does seem to, to be a – there's a benefit to going there. Well, I think the yeah. benefits are, you know, it may be that you don't have the kind of deep confidant relationship that this article was talking about, but what you do have is the, the kind of what we call weak ties right. that are incredibly important in providing information and mm-hmm. assistance. So for years, I got most of my best medical information <laughs> from a retired nurse who I would walk around the track with. Uh-huh. Uh, she since moved. You know, I don't, keep con- I don't keep in contact with her, but for a long time, that was really my basic source of good medical information. And I think you hear a lot of that at places like the Y or some of the other community-based organizations that we have. Yeah, I, I, I love doing this show because I always learn stuff. Now I, I, I can understand more why I like to go to the Y. I mean, I, and, and why when I don't see somebody that, that I see at the Y and I don't see them for a long time and then I hear that they've been ill or they died, I, you know, I feel sort of personally connected to that. So, yeah. All right. We've hit, uh, we've hit break time. So let me uh, – uh, again, introduce our, our guest, Bernice Pescolito, uh, professor of sociology at IU, and Stanley Wasserman, professor of sociology, psychology, and statistics. And we're talking about social networks. If you have questions or comments, phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info Including WFIU in your estate plans can have many benefits both to WFIU and to you. Not only can you have the pride in knowing that you are helping public radio for years to come, but also be able to take advantage of various tax savings. More information about planned giving can be obtained from your tax advisor or attorney. Information is also available through WFIU at 800-662-3311 or on the web at wfiu.indiana.edu. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg. Mary Catherine Carmichael cannot be with us today. Uh, but I have two guests in the studio, Bernice Pescolito, professor of sociology at IU, and Stanley Wasserman, professor of sociology, psychology, and statistics at IU. If you have questions or comments about our topic today, which is social networks, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, technology and how that's sort of changing the landscape. And um, Stanley, you've talked about MySpace a little bit. What's, <laughs> My, what's MySpace's uh, sort of impact on this discussion? Well, I, I think these these social software platforms have had tremendous impact on certainly the youth of this country. Um, Bernice was just mentioning her son who's off to camp and – and how Facebook was there for him to use if he needed to use it. Um, camp these days is very different than when I went to camp. <laughs> <laughs> right. You don't have to write letters home anymore. You can just send emails. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, these these um, software platforms, um, first, of course, was Friendster and Friendster um, turned into MySpace. And, and, of course, there are many more of these. Um, they're all designed to help people communicate, interact with other people. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they're used everywhere, and um, I, you know it's probably changing how people interact with other people. Yeah, I think that there. I think one of the most interesting things are some of the ironies of this, these new forms of connections. And so, you know, in my classes, I often talk to students about the fact that they have the cell phones plastered to their ears mm-hmm. because they want to other people to perceive that they're always connected. connected and right. yet the irony of that is is that they're prohibiting the um, 
possibility of new connections with other people that they're walking by on the street mm-hmm. or um, sitting with in restaurants or whatever. And so it's really a very interesting juxtaposition of these different kinds of communications and how much these young, the, the young people feel the need to, to look connected to others. The next time you walk along through campus when classes are changing, just uh-huh. notice what fraction of people have a cell phone in their oh, ears. Yeah. It's actually well, kind of scary. I'm really glad you brought this up because it's one of, one of the <laughs> mysteries to me is, is when I, I'll walk down Kirkwood or something and see two people who are clearly together – but they each have a cell phone Something talking right, to somebody else. Right. And do, do, when you talk in your classes about this, do people – do they um, have an explanation for this other than they want to appear that they're connected? Well, I think that that, that is a big issue, that, that, that there's a sense that they don't want to look like a loser. That's their big thing. But, <laughs> just with this friend. Right. I, you know. right. One of it, our colleagues, Elizabeth Armstrong here in sociology, yes. has done work on this. And, and, and that's really the big issue. And, and what it means is for people who don't already come to IU with those networks that they can end up being very isolated and staying in their rooms because they don't want to leave looking like they're not connected. And so um, it's, it's, I think it's a real issue. And, you know, as sociologists, we're sort of morbidly curious about everything. And, you know, I have to say there are times when I've, I sort of walking down the street and I listen to these conversations right. and um, they, they go like this. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> They're not exactly. What are you doing later? <laughs> what are you doing later? What's up? Um, it's really changed the nature of social interaction here um, among college students. And uh, the other thing that I hear a lot is, and, and certainly this has been covered in national press, is that it is keeping them tethered to their families, mm-hmm. which has good benefits. Um, in terms of of that bond, which we find is very important, but it also has tremendous implications for their independence. Mm -hmm. I I think I've heard also from a couple of administrators at IU that it has implications with their relationship with their university, that if anything happens, you know, they're students on the phone with their parent, you know, that morning, and by that afternoon, there's a call to some administration office here, so. Which means that they're not learning how to work out these issues on their own. Face-to-face, by themselves. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, we have a phone call. Let's go to Denny. Denny? Hey, Bob. It's Denny Morrison. Yeah, and, hi, Denny. Uh, see you're doing a great job on the solo act there. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <a lot. laughs> I, I, I wanted to uh, just ask a question. I'm, I'm sorry you touched on this. I'm calling. Uh, I'm driving back from India. I just wanted to – you may have touched this. I apologize if you have. But, Bernice, I'm particularly interested in the, the issue of um, – uh, your comment, I think it was your comment about uh, getting health information from folks while you're walking at the Y. And I wonder if you, if your, if your uh, uh, presenters there, Bob, could talk a little bit about the use of the internet for healthcare information from peer con- peer uh, sources, so that networks of cancer victims uh, or who can contact each other and use that as a source of information and support. But and of course, from our perspective, we're interested in that for folks with mental illnesses, but. Specifically, just generally, the, the topic of using that as a as a resource, and also the validity of that information versus whether it's hearsay or this kind of uh, folklore. All right, Dan. Danny, thanks a lot. Well, I think that this is the, the great benefit of the internet is that it does provide these virtual communities for people who have problems that they need to discuss with people who have experience with them. And so cancer support groups and recovery groups for people with mental illness, I think all of these things are absolutely critical in terms of not only getting the information, but in terms of the social psychological effects on recovery. So I think they're great. Um, I think there are problems with uh, in for all different kinds of topics of worrying about the the veracity of the information on the Internet. But I think there are certain clear sites, and it depends on what you're going for. If you're going for information, um, then clearly there are official sites for a lot of um, different kinds of disorders and diseases. But if you're looking for social support, then you get into one of these um, recovery groups um, chat rooms and, you know, you get what you get. Uh, but it seems to me that people there are like-minded who have shared experiences really have a wealth of information that you can't get from the official sites. All right. Stanley, any reaction? Oh, I, I agree completely. Okay. Yeah. All right. Denny, thanks a lot. Uh, if you don't know, Denny Morrison is the director of the Center for Behavioral Health here in Bloomington. So he's interested in this topic. We have an email. Um, the email says, is it is it safe to assume that networking has diminished among the U.S. college and university faculties? If so, has this trend impacted higher education, such as the quality of experience for undergraduate or graduate students? 
Among faculty members? That's what it says. Oh, Networking okay. has diminished among Absolutely faculty not. members. I mean, it's, you know, the volume of email I get from, from friends, collaborators, other statisticians, psychologists, sociologists around the world is just amazing these days. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I certainly never talked on the phone this much 20 mm-hmm. years ago before the proliferation of email. And I, it's great. You know, I can ask people questions. I can chit-chat about things related to work. It's I don't think that's true at all. Mm-hmm. I think that probably the one area in which that has diminished has been face-to-face contact uh, for faculty at this at any one university for uh, across disciplines. And so the fact that IU doesn't really have a functioning faculty club where faculty can get together and meet people from other uh, departments I think is really important and an issue that's been raised with a number of presidents but not any response. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the responses on, on everything in higher education these days really have to do with space and money. So, right. uh, But that's what's happened is that a lot of responses we get to problems are, well, we can do it via the internet or we can do it virtually. But but I think as that study points out, doing things virtually has its limits. And Stanley's absolutely right. I think the international community of scientists right. and researchers is stronger than it's ever been. I do work with people in Melbourne, Australia, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't have been possible without the internet. Mm-hmm. It just couldn't have happened. Yeah. So the, the, the whole um, social networking, the, the whole issue of networks is one that, I mean, I, I, it's you're opening a new you know new world to me because I can see the the pluses and the minuses and somehow we have to to really leverage the right. positives and mitigate the the minuses face to face there's no question face to face contact is down mm-hmm. but at the same time if I need to communicate with the chair of the department of speech and hearing here on campus I can do this very easily with email by sending a note mm-hmm. as opposed to actually you know getting her to sit down in a room with me to discuss Right. Various issues. Right. I wanted to, to go back when Denny called. Um, you were talking, Bernice, about um, you know some of the medical information that you get online, and I would broaden that I, and just sort of offer this up for your observation or reaction. A few years ago, um, I was involved with a, a seminar about you know how young people are are getting their news and. We had a young woman who's the daughter of one of our, our managers and she was about 16 years old and she said, well, and she, she gets a lot of news on the internet and we said, well, how do you know whether it's true or not? How do you know what the – she says, well, if I only see it once, I don't think it's true. But if I see it maybe three times in different places, then it's probably – I figure it's probably true, which struck me as a, a really um, interesting way to try to determine whether something is is accurate or not, and um, it's a little bit off from from networks, but it's it's right. about how people are are dealing with um, these changes in in our culture. Yeah, I, I, my son who's just turned fifteen. I think he gets all of his news off of a, a wristwatch <laughs> and off of his cell phone. Text I, messages, yeah, yeah right. So I, I don't think that uh, I think that, that we will see these kinds of changes, and uh, those are not the ones I worry about. I guess that one of the things that we need to say when we talk about networks is that again they often are um, associated with the notion of social support, but in fact a lot of the research has shown that more powerful than social support are negative networks. And so we have to be also concerned about those. It's not just the terrorist networks, but networks that um, either uh, don't provide the care and concern or even worse, make things make things difficult in your life. And so we need to understand the negative power of social networks as well as the, the positive uplifting power of them. Can you give me a, an, an example of a network that you know, make things difficult in your your life. Well, uh, I think that there that that people are concerned about. Um, let me let's go to to Denny's issue of mental illness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that we know that um, that there are there are kinds of networks that will keep people out of treatment. Now mm-hmm. you can see that as good or bad, depending on how you re- you react to the pharmaceutical ads, right? right. But um, but staying out of care, uh, at least people in the medical field believe that early treatment of mental illnesses will uh, decrease the amount of damage in the brain. It's a theory. I, I don't know how much real evidence they have on that, but but early treatment they think is important. So if you have the kind of networks that say you know psychiatrists are quacks and you shouldn't go for health care and it's just um, trying to buy friendship, then you're going to stay out of care. 
but even more importantly, I think, is that how you're treated, the kinds of network ties that you make in a treatment center, whether or not you're treated with respect and dignity, whether or not they continue to have those ties with you uh, once you leave the facility so that they're, they're sort of monitoring your ongoing care and recovery. Um, if those are good, that's great. But if they also, let's say, again, in the case of mental illness, um, reflect the stigma that is so alive in American society regarding mental illness, and it's not going to help your recovery. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of, you know, the negative rejecting ties that you get can really affect your feelings of yourself, but also whether you live or die. Mm-hmm. Okay, 855-0811-877-285-9348, and email to noon at indiana.edu. We have a phone call. It's from Eleanor. Eleanor? Hello, Eleanor. Hi there. Um, I just, going, going back to a, a comment that someone made about there not being a faculty group at IU. Faculty club. If I, if right. I understood that correctly. Are you there? Yes. Okay. Um, I do know that there is a university club that is certainly open to both faculty and staff. It's not just for faculty. And as a staff member at IU, I have found that that is a great way for connecting. Um, they have they have lunches for faculty and staff, and then for you know various groups of various all kinds of interest group types of things. Uh, and it's they have an office at the IMU, and if anybody's interested. Um, they can just go at um, uclub uh, at indiana universe at indiana.edu if anybody wants more information. Okay. Uh, but I've just found that that's a, a great way to um, meet both professional and, and social kind of contacts. So, okay. Anyway, just a comment. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. Eleanor, I love the faculty club at IU. I think that that one of the things that it has great activities, but I think that the difference, there's a difference between our faculty club in which there are activities that are planned and the kinds of faculty clubs that they have at other universities, which are uh, constantly running essentially lunchrooms and social clubs for faculty. So you can drop in any time. It doesn't have to be a particular activity. And that's more the kind of thing that I was thinking about, that it would be great if IU had that. Um, before my time, which starts in 1981, um, the rumor was that the Georgian Room at the IMU was actually that kind of drop-in place um, where you didn't have to be invited for a particular activity, but was kind of just a social space that you could go to. So um, I don't know if that's just a fond rumor or uh, if that was a reality, but I know certainly faculty that are senior to myself talk about how that really helped them meet a lot of people. Right. Go there for lunch. In the right. Old just days. go for lunch. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. We have another call. It's from Phil. Phil? Yes. Hey, go ahead. Thanks. Um, I missed the first part of the conversation, and I was curious whether or not uh, there's a, um, some reference resources that you could steer us to on the subject. Well, I mean, we began the hour talking about this piece that just came out in American Sociological Review, and um, I think if you go to the American Sociological Association website, you can probably get a link to this one particular piece. And it is interesting, and, and they certainly do a nice comparative um, study 2004 versus 1985, and I would start there. Um, if you want to learn about networks in general, um, my friend Laszlo Barabasi has a nice little book called Linked, which has sold zillions of copies, and it's available now on paperback. And it's basically about how networks are everywhere and, and how similar um, airline networks are to networks that you might find on the web. Um, web pages linked to other web pages to proteonic networks, which are used a lot these days in in biology. And so I would recommend that. It's a book called Linked by Barabasi. And if you didn't uh, hear the first part of the show, the, the uh, article that uh, Stanley's referring to is Social Isolation in America, Changes in Core Discussion Networks Over Two Decades. Thanks, Bob. I actually, and then I have a related mm-hmm. question um, about... Um, whether there is a, uh, a propensity now for um, groups of like people, groups of affinity, uh, to geographically self-locate, um, picking an area and then migrating in. I, I, in particular, I'm thinking about, I think, a place maybe in the Dakotas uh, that's a city, I think, devoted uh, to the death. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. 
I'm getting a lot of puzzled looks here. No, no, no. I'm thinking more of South Florida where everybody goes to retire. Yeah. I, I think there are those kind of networks though, university communities where like-minded people often – I mean so, somewhat like-minded people. You know, we have all kinds of people here but, but uh, there's something about university communities that draw right now some retirement folks and, and as you mentioned, South Florida right. certainly has its – you know, they're, right. uh, I, I would think people do locate to areas that they where they think they're going to find people that play golf. They might want to go to mm-hmm. a coast. And no, even even within New York City, I think we have some very classic studies that show that where you live in the city really makes a difference. So there was a classic study that was done in the '60s that suggested that networks were really critical for getting people into psychotherapy. But what was interesting about this piece was they studied the Upper West Side of New York. If they had studied some other places <laughs> nice in New York, here, yeah, <laughs> then you know. And in fact, we did some research in Puerto Rico, which suggested that networks keep you out of care. That the family in there in Puerto Rico, the culture of the family is so strong that going for medical care suggests a breakdown in the family, failure of the family. So where those where those networks are matter, and uh, I think that there are different network cultures, and it goes back to the notion that we live our life in small worlds, mm-hmm. and they do develop particular cultures. Mm-hmm. Our friend Barry Wellman at the University of Toronto has done a lot of work on the communities around Toronto, and and work on why people live where they live. So it's, you might want to take a look. His name is Wellman. Okay. Thanks a lot, Phil, for that call. And we have another call. And uh, Terrell, I think, Terrell? I know that uh, social service agencies like Habitat for Humanity, a part of their work is providing that kind of network that gets people out and, you know, provides connections across the community. I was just wondering if you have creative ideas that some of those agencies could use to make that even a more important or to do that that work better. Um, I know that some local agencies really are trying to address that very issue. And I also want to mention that um, I did work at the Georgian Room, and it was exactly a cafeteria <laughs> and a faculty hangout place in the yeah. early 70s. Early okay. 70s, right. So yeah. it's true. We miss uh, those days. Yes, yeah. we did. Um, I, I, with regard to social agencies, I think that we've known for a very long time that the kind of activities that help people uh, and that make people feel better, uh, both psychologically but also in terms of their health, are ones in which they're involved in a task. And that's why I think Habitat is so effective, is that people who have an interest in helping other people can go and help build those houses, and it helps to create a network. I think the question is whether or not there are activities off of that that would also um, allow them to maintain that face-to-face contact. Because if you, you know, go to uh, New Orleans to help build one of the 200 houses that they're trying to build, you know, a week down there, and then you come back home, it was a great experience and can be very uplifting, but it doesn't maintain the face-to-face contact or even the virtual contact. And so I think the issue is sort of planning out a strategy of being able to sustain the face-to-face contact. A lot, a lot of the stuff gets done through religious organizations too in you know, various church and synagogue groups who will say, oh, let's go work in New Orleans for a week. And um, mm-hmm. that happens a lot. All right. Oh. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot for the call. Uh, we have just a few more minutes to go, maybe five minutes. So you can probably slide in another phone call if, you, uh, if somebody out there has one, 855-0811-877-285-9348, and email to noon at indiana.edu. Uh, I was struck when she mentioned social services that, you know, we talk about the social service network. Uh, so, you know, it's a net, there are networks for each agency that's what she was talking about, and then the 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 whole group of social service agencies have a network. Inter versus intra, uh-huh. exactly. Yep. Okay. And there's been some very good work on that that suggests that it is possible to make those networks more uh, integrated and to have resources flow more smoothly along them. Mm-hmm. So uh, a big problem, a big program that was done by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation put in a, chrono- um, a men- central mental health authority and found that all of the different kinds of services that people with serious mental illness need uh, can actually flow better if you have this kind of centralized authority that helps coordinate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we've talked a, a lot about um, you know, technology and, and MySpace and what young uh, – we've alluded to young people quite a bit. But if, if you could, I, I want to sort of ask about the general sense of networks among young people. Are, there are um, – you know, in schools, there are so many different groups and organizations that people can, can get involved with today. Um, I 
think about, you know, way back when, my days in high school and the things that I was involved with, and those were the people that I tended to to relate to and, and talk with. I mean, are there more opportunities now for face-to-face networking among young people, or has technology really changed that so that more young people are having these uh, virtual networks? Is there any research on that? I think we can ask Bernice as a mother of a 15-year-old to, <laughs> to address this. My kids are older. <laughs> I, I think that if you look at the list of, uh, of uh, extracurricular groups at either North or South, South High School, for example, they really have proliferated over time. And I think that that's particularly important as the size of the high schools grow, that people have a place outside of the classroom where they can meet like-interested and like-minded people. And this is just my anecdotal observation, although there's been very good research in the sociology of education on the role of networks in in schools and how important they are, um, that these are very that, – that these become a center of the social activity for, for high schoolers. So I, mm-hmm. I think that that's – I think – I mean there have always been networks. The question is, uh, is, is it just in the – you know, is it just the, you know, the jocks and the, you know, the other groups yeah. that James Coleman Geeks. identified? Right. Yeah. Or, or have yeah. these kinds of groups actually – made it more likely that people can find identities outside of just the social hierarchy. And I think they do. Because oh, I you've think got, MySpace helps tremendously yeah. with this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. I, and I think what we see is that, that uh, you know, instant messaging and things like that actually reinforce existing networks. For sure. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, uh, the topic we started with about social isolation and the study that talked about uh, the number of confidants going down. Special kinds of confidants. Special kinds of right. confidants going down. Um, was, was there um, any uh, discussion in here about different age brackets? That is, when we're talking about, about you know, I, I brought up this, this issue of young people, so I just want to extend that a little bit. Is there any evidence or any study that talks about whether young people are, are having you know, fewer of these special kinds of confidants now? That, I, don't think we, I don't think we have the good okay. overtime data on that, yeah. but we do know that um, peer networks are very important mm-hmm. at um, the younger level and that the health studies indicate the special importance of social networks among the elderly. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think we know. I mean, it'd be hard for us, um, me as a sociologist and Stanley as a Renaissance man, uh, <laughs> to, <laughs> to um, you know, I can't imagine at what stage of the life course that networks are not important. But the right. nature of those networks change dramatically as you go through um, your life. And so the kinds of networks that were important to you in high school are not the kinds of networks that are important to you um, as you grow older. But it, it seems that these kinds of interactions are what shape people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so they're centrally important. I, I, I want to mention just briefly the Pew Internet report that mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, which really does look at networks much more broadly than this particular piece in American Sociological Review. And if you Google Pew Internet Report, you can pull it up on the net. Mm-hmm. Many, many different kinds of relational ties, many parts of the country and, and how these things have changed over the last two decades. All right. We actually have come to the, the end of our time. If, if anybody has a, a closing thought of, you know, that you haven't been able to, to slide in, now's the time. And if not, uh, we'll just go on. We're, we're on the NPR network here. So, Indeed. Oh, yes. <laughs> and they have a program to do right after ours, so I guess we better, Thanks, we better go. I want to thank both of you for being here, Bernice Pescalito and Stanley Wasserman. Thank it's you. been a fascinating hour Thanks. and a very quick one um, for... Uh, Mary Catherine Carmichael, who could not be with us today, producers Claire Deedy and Catherine Hegeman, and engineer John Shelton. I'm Bob Salzberg. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times.